0: THE TIME MACHINE BY H. G. WELLS read FOR YOU BY DAVID Witherspoon. CHAPTER FOUR In another moment we were standing face to face, I and this fragile thing out of futurity. He came straight up to me, and laughed into my eyes. The absence from his bearing of any sign of fear struck me at once. Then he turned to the two others who were following him and spoke to them in a strange and very sweet and liquid tongue. There were others coming, and presently a little group of perhaps eight or ten of these exquisite creatures were about me. One of them addressed me. It came into my head, oddly enough, that my voice was too harsh and deep for them. So I shook my head and, pointing to my ears, shook it again. He came a step forward, hesitated, then touched my hand, then I felt other soft little tentacles upon my back and shoulders. They wanted to make sure I was real. There was nothing in this at all alarming. Indeed, there was something in these pretty little people that inspired confidence, a graceful gentleness, a certain childlike ease. And besides, they looked so frail that I could fancy myself flinging the whole dozen of them about like ninepins." "'But I made a sudden motion to warn them "'when I saw their little pink hands "'feeling at the time machine. "'Happily then, when it was not too late, "'I thought of a danger I'd hitherto forgotten, "'and reaching over the bars of the machine, "'I unscrewed the little levers "'that would set it in motion "'and put these in my pocket. "'Then I turned again to see what I could do "'in the way of communication.' And then, looking more nearly into their features, I saw some further peculiarities in their Dresden-China type of prettiness. Their hair, which was uniformly curly, came to a sharp end at the neck and cheek. There was not the faintest suggestion of it in the face, and their ears were singularly minute. The mouths were small, with bright red rather thin lips, and the little chins ran to a point, The eyes were large and mild, and—this may seem egotism on my part—I fancied even that there was a certain lack of the interest I might have expected in them. As they made no effort to communicate with me, but simply stood round me smiling and speaking in soft, cooing notes to each other, I began the conversation. I pointed to the time machine and to myself then hesitating for a moment how to express time i pointed to the sun at once a quaintly pretty little figure in checkered purple and white followed my gesture and then astonished me by imitating the sound of thunder for a moment i was staggered though the import of his gesture was plain enough the question had come into my mind abruptly were these creatures fools? You may hardly understand how it took me. You see, I had always anticipated that the people of the year 802,000 odd would be incredibly in front of us in knowledge, art, everything. Then one of them suddenly asked me a question that showed him to be on the intellectual level of one of our five year old children. Asked me, in fact, if I had come from the sun in a thunderstorm. It let loose the judgment I had suspended upon their clothes, their frail, light limbs, and fragile features. A flow of disappointment rushed across my mind. For a moment I felt that I had built the time machine in vain. I nodded, pointed to the sun, and gave them such a vivid rendering of a thunderclap as startled them. They all withdrew a pace or so and bowed, Then came one laughing towards me, carrying a chain of beautiful flowers, altogether new to me, and put it about my neck. The idea was received with melodious applause, and presently they were all running to and fro for flowers and laughing, flinging them upon me until I was almost smothered with blossom. You who have never seen the like can scarcely imagine what delicate and wonderful flowers countless years of culture had created." Then someone suggested that their plaything should be exhibited in the nearest building, and so I was led past the sphinx of white marble, which had seemed to watch me all the while, with a smile at my astonishment, towards a vast grey edifice of fretted stone. As I went with them, the memory of my confident anticipations, of a profoundly grave and intellectual posterity came, with irresistible merriment to my mind— The building had a huge entry and was altogether of colossal dimensions. I was naturally most occupied with the growing crowd of little people and with the big open portals that yawned before me, shadowy and mysterious. My general impression of the world, I saw over their heads, was a tangled waste of beautiful bushes and flowers, a long-neglected and yet weedless garden. I saw a number of tall spikes of strange white flowers— measuring a foot, perhaps, across the spread of the waxen petals. They grew scattered as if wild among the variegated shrubs, but, as I say, I did not examine them closely at this time. The time machine was left deserted on the turf among the rhododendrons. The arch of the doorway was richly carved, but naturally I did not observe the carving very narrowly, though I fancied I saw suggestions of old Phoenician decorations as I passed through and it struck me that they were very badly broken and weather-worn. Several more brightly clad people met me in the doorway, and so we entered, I dressed in dingy nineteenth-century garments, looking grotesque enough, garlanded with flowers, and surrounded by an eddying mass of bright soft-colored robes and shining white limbs in a melodious whirl of laughter and laughing speech. The big doorway opened into a proportionately great hall hung with brown— The roof was in shadow, and the windows, partially glazed with colored glass and partially unglazed, admitted a tempered light. The floor was made up of huge blocks of some very hard white metal. Not plates nor slabs, blocks, and it was so much worn, as I judged by the going to and fro of past generations, as to be deeply channeled along the more frequented ways. Transverse to the length were innumerable tables made of slabs of polished stone, raised perhaps a foot from the floor, and upon these were heaps of fruits, some I recognized as a kind of hypertrophied raspberry and orange, but for the most part they were strange. Between the tables was scattered a great number of cushions. Upon these my conductors seated themselves, signing for me to do likewise— With a pretty absence of ceremony, they began to eat the fruit with their hands, flinging peel and stalks and so forth into the round openings in the side of the tables. I was not loath to follow their example, for I felt thirsty and hungry. As I did so, I surveyed the hall in my leisure. And perhaps the thing that struck me most was its dilapidated look, the stained-glass windows which displayed only a geometrical pattern— were broken in many places, and the curtains that hung across the lower end were thick with dust, and it caught my eye that the corner of the marble table near me was fractured. Nevertheless, the general effect was extremely rich and picturesque. There were perhaps a couple of hundred people dining in the hall, and most of them, seated as near me as they could come, were watching me with interest, their little eyes shining over the fruit they were eating— All were clad in the same soft yet strong, silky material. Fruit, by the way, was all their diet. These people of the remote future were strict vegetarians, and while I was with them, in spite of some carnal cravings, I had to be frugivorous also. Indeed, I found afterwards that horses, cattle, sheep, dogs, had followed the Ichthyosaurus into extinction. But the fruits were very delightful. One in particular that seemed to be in season all the time I was there, a flowery thing in a three-sided husk, was especially good, and I made it my staple. At first I was puzzled by all these strange fruits and by the strange flowers I saw, but later I began to perceive their import. However, I am telling you of my fruit dinner in the distant future now, so soon as my appetite was a little checked— I determined to make a resolute attempt to learn the speech of these new men of mine. Clearly, that was the next thing to do. The fruits seemed a convenient thing to begin upon, and holding one of these up, I began a series of interrogative sounds and gestures. I had some considerable difficulty in conveying my meaning. At first, my efforts met with a stare of surprise or inextinguishable laughter, but— Presently, a fair-haired little creature seemed to grasp my intention and repeated a name. They had to chatter and explain the business at great length to each other, and my first attempts to make the exquisite little sounds of their language caused an immense amount of amusement. However, I felt like a schoolmaster amid children, and persisted, and presently I had a score of noun substantives at least at my command, and then I got to demonstrative pronouns and even the verb to eat But it was slow work, and the little people soon tired and wanted to get away from my interrogations, so I determined, rather of necessity, to let them give their lessons in little doses when they felt inclined, and very little doses I found they were before long, for I never met people more indolent or more easily fatigued. A queer thing I soon discovered about my little hosts, and that was their lack of interest They would come to me with eager cries of astonishment like children, but like children they would soon stop examining me and wander away after some other toy. The dinner and my conversational beginnings ended. I noted for the first time that almost all those who had surrounded me at first were gone. It is odd, too, how speedily I came to disregard these little people. I went out through the portal into the sunlit world again as soon as my hunger was satisfied. I was continually meeting more of these men of the future who would follow me a little distance, chatter and laugh about me, and, having smiled and gesticulated in a friendly way, leave me again to my own devices. The calm of evening was upon the world as I emerged from the great hall, and the scene was lit by the warm glow of the setting sun. At first things were very confusing. Everything was so entirely different from the world I had known, even the flowers The big building I had left was situated on the slope of a broad river valley, but the Thames had shifted perhaps a mile from its present position. I resolved to mount to the summit of a crest perhaps a mile and a half away, from which I could get a wider view of this, our planet in the year 802,701 A.D. For that, I should explain, was the date the little dials of my machine recorded. As I walked... I was watching for every impression that could possibly help to explain the condition of ruinous splendor in which I found the world. For ruinous it was. A little way up the hill, for instance, was a great heap of granite, bound together by masses of aluminum. A vast labyrinth of precipitous walls and crumpled heaps amidst which were thick heaps of very beautiful pagoda-like plants, nettles possibly— but wonderfully tinted with brown about the leaves and incapable of stinging, it was evidently the derelict remains of some vast structure. To what end built I could not determine. It was here that I was destined, at a later date, to have a very strange experience, the first intimation of a still stranger discovery, but of that I will speak in its proper place.' Looking round with a sudden thought from a terrace on which I rested for a while, I realized that there were no small houses to be seen. Apparently, the single house, and possibly even the household, had vanished. Here and there among the greenery were palace-like buildings, but the house and the cottage which formed such characteristic features of our own English landscape had disappeared. Communism, I said to myself. "'And on the heels of that came another thought. "'I looked at the half-dozen little figures that were following me. "'Then, in a flash, I perceived that all had the same form of costume, "'the same soft, hairless visage, and the same girlish rotundity of limb. "'It may seem strange, perhaps, that I had not noticed this before, "'but everything was so strange. "'Now I saw the fact plainly enough.' In costume, and in all the differences of texture and bearing that now mark off the sexes from each other, these people of the future were alike, and the children seemed to my eyes to be but the miniatures of their parents. I judged then that the children of that time were extremely precocious, physically at least, and I found afterwards abundant verification of my opinion. Seeing the ease and security in which these people were living, I felt that the close resemblance of the sexes was, after all, what one would expect. For the strength of a man and the softness of a woman, the institution of the family, and the differentiation of occupations are mere militant necessities of an age of physical force. Where population is balanced and abundant, much childbearing becomes an evil rather than a blessing to the state. Where violence comes but rarely and offspring are secure, there is less necessity, indeed, there is no necessity, for an efficient family." and the specialization of the sexes, with reference to their children's needs, disappears. We see some beginnings of this even in our own time, and in this future age it was complete. This, I must remind you, was my speculation at the time. Later, I was to appreciate how far it fell short of the reality. While I was musing upon these things, my attention was attracted by a pretty little structure, like a well under a cupola, I thought in a transitory way of the oddness of wells still existing, and then resumed the thread of my speculations. There were no large buildings towards the top of the hill, and as my walking powers were evidently miraculous, I was presently left alone for the first time. With a strange sense of freedom and adventure, I pushed up to the crest. There I found a seat of some yellow metal that I did not recognize, corroded in places with a kind of pinkish rust and half-smothered in soft moss, the armrests cast and filed into the resemblance of griffin's heads. I sat down on it, and I surveyed the broad view of our old world under the sunset of that long day. It was as sweet and fair a view as I have ever seen. The sun had already gone below the horizon, and the west was flaming gold— touched with some horizontal bars of purple and crimson. Below was the valley of the Thames, in which the river lay like a band of burnished steel. I have already spoken of the great palaces dotted about among the variegated greenery, some in ruins and some still occupied. Here and there arose a white or silvery figure in the waste garden of the earth. Here and there came the sharp vertical line of some cupola or obelisk there were no hedges, no sign of proprietary rights, no evidences of agriculture. The whole earth had become a garden. So, watching, I began to put my interpretations upon the things I had seen, and as it shaped itself to me that evening, my interpretation was something in this way. Afterwards, I found I had got only a half-truth, or only a glimpse of one facet of the truth." it seemed to me that I had happened upon humanity upon the wane. The ruddy sunset set me thinking of the sunset of mankind. For the first time I began to realize an odd consequence of the social effort in which we are at present engaged, and yet come to think it is a logical consequence enough. Strength is the outcome of need. Security sets a premium on feebleness." The work of ameliorating the conditions of life, the true civilizing process that makes life more and more secure, had gone steadily on to a climax. One triumph of a united humanity over nature had followed another. Things that are now mere dreams had become projects deliberately put in hand and carried forward, and the harvest was what I saw. After all, the sanitation and the agriculture of today are still in the rudimentary stage, The science of our time has attacked but a little department of the field of human disease, but even so, it spreads its operations very steadily and persistently. Our agriculture and horticulture destroy a weed just here and there and cultivate perhaps a score or so of wholesome plants, leaving the greater number to fight out a balance as they can. We improve our favorite plants and animals, and how few they are, gradually, by selective breeding, now a new and better peach, now a seedless grape, now a sweeter and larger flower, now a more convenient breed of cattle. We improve upon them gradually because our ideals are vague and tentative, and our knowledge is very limited, because nature, too, is shy and slow in our clumsy hands. Someday all this will be better organized and still better, That is the drift of the current, in spite of the eddies. The whole world will be intelligent, educated, and cooperating. Things will move faster and faster towards the subjugation of nature. In the end, wisely and carefully, we shall readjust the balance of animal and vegetable meat to suit our human needs. This adjustment, I say, must have been done, and done well, done indeed for all time, in the space of time across which my machine had leaped. The air was free from gnats, the earth from weeds or fungi. Everywhere were fruits and sweet and delightful flowers. Brilliant butterflies flew hither and thither. The ideal of preventative medicine was attained. Diseases had been stamped out. I saw no evidence of any contagious diseases during all my stay. And I shall have to tell you later that even the processes of putrefaction and decay had been profoundly affected by these changes. Social triumphs, too, had been effected. I saw mankind housed in splendid shelters, gloriously clothed, and as yet I had found them engaged in no toil. There were no signs of struggle, neither social nor economical struggle. The shop, the advertisement, traffic, all that commerce which constitutes the body of our world was gone. It was natural on that golden evening that I should jump at the idea of a social paradise. The difficulty of increasing population had been met, I guessed, and population had ceased to increase. But with this change in condition comes, inevitably, adaptations to the change. What, unless biological science is a mass of errors, is the cause of human intelligence and vigor? Hardship and freedom conditions under which the active, strong, and subtle survive and the weaker go to the wall, conditions that put a premium upon the loyal alliance of capable men, upon self-restraint, patience, and decision, and the institution of the family and the emotions that arise therein, the fierce jealousy, the tenderness for offspring, parental self-devotion, all found their justification and support in the imminent dangers of the young. Now, Where are these imminent dangers? There is a sentiment arising, and it will grow against connubial jealousy, against fierce maternity, against passion of all sorts, unnecessary things now, and things that make us uncomfortable, savage survivals, discords in a refined and pleasant life. I thought of the physical slightness of the people, their lack of intelligence and those big abundant ruins, and it strengthened my belief in a perfect conquest of nature. For after the battle comes quiet, humanity has been strong, energetic, and intelligent, and had used all its abundant vitality to alter the conditions under which it lived. And now came the reaction of the altered conditions. Under the new conditions of perfect comfort and security, that restless energy that with us is strength would become weakness, Even in our own time, certain tendencies and desires, once necessary to survival, are a constant source of failure. Physical courage and the love of battle, for instance, are no great help, may even be hindrances to a civilized man. And in a state of physical balance and security, power, intellectual as well as physical, would be out of place. For countless years, I judged there had been no danger of war or solitary violence, No danger from wild beasts, no wasting disease to require strength of constitution, no need of toil. For such a life, what we should call the weak are as well equipped as the strong, are indeed no longer weak. Better equipped indeed they are, for the strong would be fretted by an energy for which there was no outlet. No doubt the exquisite beauty of the buildings I saw was the outcome of the last surgings, of the now purposeless energy of mankind before it settled down into perfect harmony with the conditions under which it lived. The flourish of that triumph which began the last great peace, this has ever been the fate of energy and security. It takes to art and to eroticism. Then come languor and decay. Even this artistic impetus would at last die away, had almost died in the time I saw, to adorn themselves with flowers, to dance, to sing in the sunlight. So much was left of the artistic spirit and no more. Even that would fade in the end to a contented inactivity. We are kept keen on the grindstone of pain and necessity, and it seemed to me that here was that hateful grindstone broken at last. As I stood there in the gathering dark, I thought in this simple explanation I had mastered the problem of the world, mastered the whole secret of these delicious people. Possibly the checks they had devised for the increase of population had succeeded too well, and their numbers had rather diminished than kept stationary. That would account for the abandoned ruins. Very simple was my explanation, and plausible enough, as most wrong theories are. CHAPTER FIVE As I stood there, musing over this too perfect triumph of man, the full moon, yellow and gibbous, came up out of the overflow of silver light in the northeast. The bright little figures ceased to move about now. A noiseless owl flitted by, and I shivered with the chill of the night, I determined to descend and find where I could sleep. I looked for the building I knew. Then my eye traveled along to the figure of the white sphinx upon the pedestal of bronze, growing distinct as the light of the rising moon grew brighter. I could see the silver birch against it. There was the tangle of rhododendron bushes, black in the pale light, and there was the little lawn. I looked at the lawn again, A queer doubt chilled my complacency. No, I said stoutly to myself, that was not the lawn. But it was the lawn, for the white leprous face of the sphinx was toward it. Can you imagine what I felt as this conviction came home to me? But you cannot. The time machine was gone. At once, like a lash across the face, came the possibility of losing my own age, of being left helpless in this strange new world. The bare thought of it was an actual physical sensation. I could feel it grip me at the throat and stop my breathing. In another moment I was in a passion of fear and running with great leaping strides down the slope. Once I fell headlong and cut my face. I lost no time in stanching the blood but jumped up and ran on with a warm trickle down my cheek and chin. "'All the time I ran, I was saying to myself, "'They've moved it a little, pushed it under the bushes, out of the way. "'Nevertheless, I ran with all my might. "'All the time, with the certainty that sometimes comes with excessive dread, "'I knew that such assurance was folly, "'knew instinctively that the machine was removed out of my reach. "'My breath came with pain.' I suppose I covered the whole distance from the hill crest to the little lawn, two miles perhaps in ten minutes, and I'm not a young man. I cursed aloud as I ran at my confident folly in leaving the machine, wasting good breath thereby. I cried aloud, and none answered. Not a creature seemed to be stirring in that moonlit world. When I reached the lawn, my worst fears were realized, not a trace of the thing was to be seen. I felt faint and cold when I faced the empty space among the black tangle of bushes. I ran round it furiously, as if the thing might be hidden in a corner, then stopped abruptly with my hands clutching my hair. Above me towered the sphinx under the bronze pedestal, white, shining, leprous in the light of the rising moon. It seemed to smile in mockery of my dismay. I might have consoled myself by imagining the little people had put the mechanism in some shelter for me, had I not felt assured of their physical and intellectual inadequacy. That is what dismayed me, the sense of some hitherto unsuspected power, through whose intervention my invention had vanished. Yet for one thing I felt assured— Unless some other age had produced its exact duplicate, the machine could not have moved in time. The attachment of the levers—I will show you the method later—prevented anyone from tampering with it in that way when they were removed. It had moved, and it was hid only in space, but then where could it be? I think I must have had a kind of frenzy— I remember running violently in and out among the moonlit bushes all round the Sphinx and startling some white animal that in the dim light I took for a small deer. I remember, too, late that night, beating the bushes with my clenched fists until my knuckles were gashed and bleeding from the broken twigs. Then, sobbing and raving in the anguish of my mind, I went down to the great building of stone, the big hall was dark, silent, and deserted. I slipped on the uneven floor and fell over one of the malachite tables, almost breaking my shin. I lit a match and went on past the dusty curtains of which I have told you. There I found a second great hall, covered with cushions, upon which perhaps a score or so of the little people were sleeping. I have no doubt They found my second appearance, strange enough, coming suddenly out of the quiet darkness with inarticulate noises and the splutter and flare of a match, for they had forgotten about matches. "'Where is my time-machine?' I began, bawling like an angry child, laying hands upon them and shaking them up together. It must have been very queer to them. Some laughed, most of them looked sorely frightened.' When I saw them standing round me, it came into my head that I was doing as foolish a thing as it was possible for me to do under the circumstances and trying to revive the sensation of fear. For reasoning from their daylight behavior, I thought that fear must be forgotten. Abruptly, I dashed down the match, and, knocking one of the people over in my course, went blundering across the big dining hall again, out under the moonlight. I heard cries of terror and their little feet running and stumbling this way and that. I do not remember all I did as the moon crept up the sky. I suppose it was the unexpected nature of my loss that maddened me. I felt hopelessly cut off from my own kind, a strange animal in an unknown world. I must have raved to and fro, screaming and crying upon God and fate. I have memory of horrible fatigue, as the long night of despair wore away, of looking in this impossible place and that of groping among moonlit ruins and touching strange creatures in the black shadows, at last of lying on the ground near the Sphinx and weeping with absolute wretchedness. I had nothing left but misery. Then I slept, and when I woke again it was full day, and a couple of sparrows were hopping round me on the turf within reach of my arm. I sat up in the freshness of the morning, trying to remember how I had got there and why I had such a profound sense of desertion and despair. Then things came clear in my mind. With the plain, reasonable daylight, I could look upon my circumstances fairly in the face. I saw the wild folly of my frenzy overnight, and I could reason with myself— Suppose the worst, I said. Suppose the machine, altogether lost, perhaps destroyed. It behooves me to be calm and patient, to learn the way of the people, to get a clear idea of the method of my loss and the means of getting materials and tools, so that in the end, perhaps, I may make another. That would be my only hope, perhaps, but better than despair. And after all, it was a beautiful and curious world but probably the machine had only been taken away. Still, I must be calm and patient, find its hiding place and recover it by force or cunning, and with that I scrambled to my feet and looked about me, wondering where I could bathe. I felt weary, stiff and travel-soiled. The freshness of the morning made me desire an equal freshness. I had exhausted my emotion. Indeed, as I went about my business, I found myself wondering at my intense excitement overnight. I made a careful examination of the ground about the little lawn. I wasted some time in futile questionings conveyed as well as I was able to such of the little people as came by. They all failed to understand my gestures. Some were simply stolid. Some thought it was a jest and laughed at me. I had the hardest task in the world to keep my hands off their pretty, laughing faces. It was a foolish impulse, but the devil, begotten of fear and blind anger, was ill-curbed and still eager to take advantage of my perplexity. The turf gave better counsel. I found a groove ripped in it, about midway between the pedestal of the Sphinx and the marks of my feet, where, upon arrival, I had struggled with the overturned machine. There were other signs of removal about with queer, narrow footprints like those I could imagine made by a sloth. This directed my closer attention to the pedestal. It was, as I think I have said, of bronze. It was not a mere block, but highly decorated, with deep-framed panels on either side. I went and rapped at these. The pedestal was hollow. Examining the panels with care, I found them discontinuous with the frames. There were no handles or keyholes, but possibly the panels, if they were doors, as I supposed, opened from within. One thing was clear enough to my mind. It took no very great mental effort to infer that my time machine was inside of that pedestal. But how it got there was a different problem. "'I saw the heads of two orange-clad people "'coming through the bushes "'and under some blossom-covered apple trees toward me. "'I turned, smiling to them, and beckoned them to me. "'They came. "'And then, pointing to the bronze pedestal, "'I tried to intimate my wish to open it. "'But at my first gesture towards this, "'they behaved very oddly. "'I don't know how to convey their expression to you.' Suppose you were to use a grossly improper gesture to a delicate-minded woman. It is how she would look. They went off as if they had received the last possible insult. I tried a sweet-looking little chap in white necks with exactly the same result. Somehow his manner made me feel ashamed of myself. But, as you know, I wanted the time machine, and I tried him once more." As he turned off like the others, my temper got the better of me. In three strides, I was after him, had him by the loose part of his robe round the neck, and began dragging him towards the Sphinx. Then I saw the horror and repugnance of his face, and all of a sudden I let him go. But I was not beaten yet. I banged with my fist at the bronze panels. I thought I heard something stir inside. To be explicit, I thought I heard a sound like a chuckle but I must have been mistaken. Then I got a big pebble from the river and came and hammered till I'd flattened a coil in the decorations and the verdigris came off in powdery flakes. The delicate little people must have heard me hammering in gusty outbreaks a mile away on either hand, but nothing came of it. I saw a crowd of them upon the slopes looking furtively at me. At last, hot and tired, I sat down to watch the place but I was too restless to watch long. I am too occidental for a long vigil. I could work at a problem for years, but to wait inactive for twenty-four hours, that is another matter. I got up after a time, and began walking aimlessly through the bushes towards the hill again. "'Patience,' I said to myself. "'If you want your machine again, you must leave that sphinx alone.' If they mean to take your machine away, it's little good you're wrecking the bronze panels, and if they don't, you will get it back as soon as you can ask for it. To sit among all these unknown things before a puzzle like that is hopeless. That way lies monomania. Face this world. Learn its ways. Watch it. Be careful of the two hasty guesses at its meaning. In the end, you will find clues to it all. Then suddenly the humor of the situation came to mind, the thought of the years I had spent in study, and the toil to get into the future age, and now my passion of anxiety to get out of it. I had made myself the most complicated and the most hopeless trap that ever a man devised. Although it was at my own expense, I could not help myself. I laughed aloud. Going through the big palace, it seemed to me that the little people avoided me. It may have been my fancy, or it may have had something to do with my hammering at the gates of bronze, yet I felt tolerably sure of the avoidance. I was careful, however, to show no concern and to abstain from any pursuit of them, and in the course of a day or two, things got back to the old footing. I made what progress I could in the language, and in addition I pushed my explorations here and there. Either I missed some subtle point or their language was excessively simple, almost exclusively composed of concrete substantives and verbs. There seemed to be very few, if any, abstract terms or little use of figurative language. Their sentences were usually simple and of two words, and I failed to convey or understand any but the simplest propositions. I determined... "'to put the thought of my time machine "'and the mystery of the bronze doors under the Sphinx "'as much as possible in a corner of memory "'until my growing knowledge would lead me back to them in a natural way. "'Yet a certain feeling, you may understand, "'tethered me in a circle of a few miles round the point of my arrival. "'So far as I could see, "'all the world displayed the same exuberant richness as the Thames Valley. "'From every hill I saw the same abundance of splendid buildings— endlessly varied in material and style, the same clustering thickets of evergreens, the same blossom-laden trees and tree ferns. Here and there water shone like silver, and beyond the land rose into blue undulating hills, and so faded into the serenity of the sky. A peculiar feature which presently attracted my attention was the presence of certain circular wells, several, as it seemed to me, of a very great depth. One lay by the path up the hill, which I had followed during my first walk. Like the others, it was rimmed with bronze, curiously wrought and protected by a little cupola from the rain. Sitting by the side of these wells and peering down into the shafted darkness, I could see no gleam of water, nor could I start any reflection with a lighted match. But in all of them I heard a certain sound— a thud, 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 like the beating of some big engine, and I discovered from the flaring of my matches that a steady current of air set down the shafts. Further, I threw a scrap of paper into the throat of one, and instead of fluttering slowly down, it was at once sucked swiftly out of sight. After a time, too, I came to connect these wells with tall towers standing here and there upon the slopes, for above them there was often just such a flicker in the air as one sees on a hot day above a sun-scorched beach. Putting things together, I reached a strong suggestion of an extensive system of subterranean ventilation, whose true import it was difficult to imagine. I was at first inclined to associate it with the sanitary apparatus of these people. It was an obvious conclusion, but it was absolutely wrong. And here I must admit that I learned very little of drains and bells and modes of conveyance and the like conveniences during my time in this real future. In some of these visions of utopias and coming times which I have read, there is a vast amount of detail about building and social arrangements and so forth. But while such details are easy enough to obtain when the whole world is contained in one's imagination they are altogether inaccessible to a real traveler amid such realities as I found there. Conceive the tale of London, which a Negro, fresh from Central Africa, would take back to his tribe. What would he know of railway companies, of social movements, of telephone and telegraph wires, of the parcels delivery company, and postal orders and the like? yet we at least should be willing enough to explain these things to him. And even of what he knew, how much could he make his untraveled friend either apprehend or believe? Then think how narrow the gap between a negro and a white man of our own times, and how wide the interval between myself and these of the golden age. I was sensible of much which was unseen, and which contributed to my comfort. But save for a general impression of automatic organization— I fear I can convey very little of the difference to your mind. In the matter of sepulture, for instance, I could see no signs of crematoria, nor anything suggestive of tombs, but it occurred to me that, possibly, there might be cemeteries or crematoria somewhere beyond the range of my explorings. This, again, was a question I deliberately put to myself, and my curiosity was at first entirely defeated upon the point. The thing puzzled me, and I was led to make a further remark, which puzzled me still more, that aged and infirm among this people there were none. I must confess that my satisfaction with my first theories of an automatic civilization and a decent humanity did not long endure. Yet I could think of no other. Let me put my difficulties— The several big palaces I had explored were mere living places, great dining halls and sleeping apartments. I could find no machinery, no appliance of any kind. Yet these people were clothed in pleasant fabrics that must at times need renewal, and their sandals, though undecorated, were fairly complex specimens of metalwork. Somehow such things must be made, and the little people displayed no vestige of a creative tendency." There were no shops, no workshops, no sign of importations among them. They spent all their time in playing gently, in bathing in the river, in making love in a half-playful fashion, in eating fruit and sleeping. I could not see how things were kept going. Then again, about the time machine, something I knew not what had taken it into the hollow pedestal of the White Sphinx. Why? For the life of me, I could not imagine. Those waterless wells, too, those flickering pillars. I felt lacked a clue. I felt. How shall I put it? Suppose you found an inscription with sentences here and there in excellent plain English, and interpolated therewith others made up of words, of letters even, absolutely unknown to you? Well, on the third day of my visit, That was how the world of 802,701 presented itself to me. That day, too, I made a friend of sorts. It happened that as I was watching some of the little people bathing in a shallow, one of them was seized with cramp and began drifting downstream. The main current ran rather swiftly, but not too strongly for even a moderate swimmer. It will give you an idea, therefore, of the strange deficiency in these creatures when I tell you that none made the slightest attempt to rescue the weakly crying little thing which was drowning before their eyes. When I realized this, I hurriedly slipped off my clothes and, wading in at a lower point down, I caught the poor mite and drew her safe to land. A little rubbing of the limbs soon brought her round, and I had the satisfaction of seeing she was all right before I left her. "'I had got to such a low estimate of her kind "'that I did not expect any gratitude from her. "'In that, however, I was wrong. "'This happened in the morning. "'In the afternoon, I met my little woman, "'as I believe it was, "'as I was returning towards my centre from an exploration, "'and she received me with cries of delight "'and presented me with a big garland of flowers, "'evidently made for me and me alone. "'The thing took my imagination.' Very possibly I had been feeling desolate. At any rate, I did my best to display my appreciation of the gift. We were soon seated together in a little stone arbor, engaged in conversation, chiefly of smiles. The creature's friendliness affected me exactly as a child's might have done. We passed each other flowers, and she kissed my hands. I did the same to hers. Then I tried talk and found that her name was Weena which, though I don't know what it meant, somehow seemed appropriate enough. That was the beginning of a queer friendship, which lasted a week, and ended, as I will tell you. She was exactly like a child. She wanted to be with me always. She tried to follow me everywhere, and on my next journey out and about, it went to my heart to tire her down and leave her at last exhausted, and calling after me rather plaintively. But the problems of the world had to be mastered— I had not, I said to myself, come into the future to carry on a miniature flirtation. Yet her distress when I left her was very great. Her expostulations at the parting were sometimes frantic, and I think altogether I had as much trouble as comfort from her devotion. Nevertheless, she was somehow a very great comfort. I thought it was mere childish affection that made her cling to me, until it was too late, "'I did not clearly know what I had inflicted upon her when I left her. "'Nor until it was too late did I clearly understand what she was to me. "'For by merely seeming fond of me "'and showing in her weak futile way that she cared for me, "'the little doll of a creature presently gave my return "'to the neighborhood of the white sphinx "'almost a feeling of coming home. "'And I would watch for her tiny figure of white and gold "'so soon as I came over the hill.' It was from her, too, that I learned that fear had not yet left the world. She was fearless enough in the daylight, and she had the oddest confidence in me. For once, in a foolish moment, I made threatening grimaces at her. And she simply laughed at them. But she dreaded the dark, dreaded shadows, dreaded black things. Darkness to her was the one thing dreadful. It was a singularly passionate emotion, and it set me thinking and observing. I discovered then, among other things, that these little people gathered into the great houses after dark and slept in droves. To enter upon them without a light was to put them in a tumult of apprehension. I never found one out of doors or one sleeping alone within doors after dark. Yet I was still such a blockhead that I missed the lesson of that fear and in spite of Weena's distress, I insisted upon sleeping away from these slumbering multitudes. It troubled her greatly, but in the end her odd affection for me triumphed, and for five of the nights of our acquaintance, including the last night of all, she slept with her head pillowed upon my arm. But my story slips away from me as I speak of her. It must have been the night before her rescue that I was awakened about dawn. I'd been restless, dreaming mostly disagreeably that I was drowned and that sea anemones were feeling over my face with their soft palps. I woke with a start and with an odd fancy that some grayish animal had just rushed out of the chamber. I tried to sleep again, but I felt restless and uncomfortable. It was that dim gray hour when things are just creeping out of darkness, when everything is colorless and clear-cut yet unreal. I got up and went down into the great hall, and so out upon the flagstones in front of the palace. I thought it would make a virtue of necessity and see the sunrise. The moon was setting, and the dying moonlight and the first pallor of dawn were mingled in a ghastly half-light. The bushes were inky black, the ground a somber gray, the sky colorless and cheerless, and up the hill I thought I could see ghosts three several times as I scanned the slope, I saw white figures. Twice I fancied I saw a solitary white ape-like creature running rather quickly up the hill. And once near the ruins, I saw a leash of them carrying some dark body. They moved hastily. I did not see what became of them. It seemed that they vanished along the bushes. The dawn was still indistinct You must understand, I was feeling that chill, uncertain early-morning feeling you may have known. I doubted my eyes. As the eastern sky grew brighter, and the light of the day came on and its vivid coloring returned upon the world once more, I scanned the view keenly, but I saw no vestige of my white figures. They were mere creatures of the half-light. They must have been ghosts, I said. I wonder whence they dated. For a queer notion of Grant Allen's came into my head and amused me. If each generation die and leave ghosts, he argued, the world at last will get overcrowded with them. On that theory, they would have grown innumerable some 800,000 years hence. And it was no great wonder to see four at once, but the jest was unsatisfying, and I was thinking of these figures all the morning until Weena's rescue drove them out of my head, I associated them in some indefinite way with the white animal I had startled in my first passionate search for the time machine. But Weena was a pleasant substitute. Yet all the same, they were soon destined to take far deadlier possession of my mind. I think I have said how much hotter than our own was the weather of this golden age. I cannot account for it. It may be that the sun was hotter, or the earth nearer the sun, It is usual to assume that the sun will go on cooling steadily in the future, but people unfamiliar with such speculations as those of the younger Darwin forget that the planets must ultimately fall back one by one into the parent body. As these catastrophes occur, the sun will blaze with renewed energy, and it may be that some inner planet had suffered this fate. Whatever the reason, the fact remains that the sun was very much hotter than as we know it. Well, one very hot morning, my fourth, I think, as I was seeking shelter from the heat and glare in a colossal ruin near the great house where I slept and fed, there happened this strange thing. Clambering among these heaps of masonry, I found a narrow gallery whose end and side windows were blocked by fallen masses of stone. By contrast with the brilliancy outside, it seemed at first impenetrably dark to me. I entered it groping, for the change from light to blackness made spots of color swim before me. Suddenly I halted spellbound. A pair of eyes, luminous by reflection against the daylight without, was watching me out of the darkness. The old instinctive dread of wild beasts came upon me. I clenched my hands and steadfastly looked into the glaring eyeballs. I was afraid to turn— Then the thought of absolute security in which humanity appeared to be living came to my mind, and then I remembered that strange terror of the dark. Overcoming my fear to some extent, I advanced a step and spoke. I will admit that my voice was harsh and ill-controlled. I put up my hand and touched something soft. At once the eyes darted sideways and something white ran past me. I turned with my heart in my mouth and saw a queer little ape-like figure, its head held down in a peculiar manner, running across the sunlit space behind me. It blundered against a block of granite, staggered aside, and in a moment was hidden in a black shadow beneath another pile of ruined masonry. My impression of it is, of course, imperfect, but I know it was a dull white and had strange, large, grayish-red eyes Also that there was a flaxen hair on its head and down its back. But as I say, it went too fast for me to see distinctly. I cannot even say whether it ran on all fours, or only with its forearms held very low. After an instant's pause, I followed it into the second heap of ruins. I could not find it at first, but after a time in the profound obscurity, I came upon one of those round, well-like openings of which I have told you half closed by a fallen pillar. A sudden thought came to me. Could this thing have vanished down the shaft? I lit a match, and looking down, I saw a small white moving creature with large bright eyes, which regarded me steadfastly as it retreated. It made me shudder. It was so like a human spider. It was clambering down the wall, and now I saw for the first time a number of metal foot and hand rests forming a kind of ladder down the shaft. Then the light burned my fingers and fell out of my hand, going out as it dropped, and when I had another lit, the little monster had disappeared. I do not know how long I sat peering down that well. It was not for some time that I could succeed in persuading myself that the thing I had seen was human. But gradually... The truth dawned on me, that man had not remained one species, but had differentiated into two distinct animals. That my graceful children of the upper world were not the sole descendants of our generation, but that this bleached, obscene, nocturnal thing which had flashed before me was also heir to all the ages. I thought of the flickering pillars and of my theory of an underground ventilation— I began to suspect their true import, and what, I wondered, was this lemur doing in my scheme of a perfectly balanced organization? How was it related to the indolent serenity of the beautiful upper-worlders, and what was hidden down there at the foot of that shaft? I sat upon the edge of the well, telling myself that, at any rate, there was nothing to fear, and that there I must descend for the solution of my difficulties— And withal, I was absolutely afraid to go. As I hesitated, two of the beautiful upper world people came running in their amorous sport across the daylight in the shadow. The male pursued the female, flinging flowers at her as he ran. They seemed distressed to find me, my arm against the overturned pillar peering down the well. Apparently it was considered bad form to remark these apertures, for when I pointed to this one and tried to frame a question about it in their tongue, they were still more visibly distressed and turned away. But they were interested by my matches, and I struck some to amuse them. I tried them again about the well, and again I failed, so presently I left them, meaning to go back to Weena and see what I could get from her. But my mind was already in revolution. My guesses and impressions were slipping and sliding to a new adjustment. I had now a clue to the import of these wells, to the ventilating towers, to the mystery of the ghosts, to say nothing of a hint at the meaning of the bronze gates and the fate of the time machine. And very vaguely there came a suggestion towards the solution of the economic problem that had puzzled me. Here was the new view— Plainly, this second species of man was subterranean. There were three circumstances in particular which made me think that its rare emergence above ground was the outcome of a long-continued underground habit. In the first place, there was the bleached look common in most animals that live largely in the dark. The white fish of the Kentucky caves, for instance. Then those large eyes, with that capacity for reflecting light, are common features of nocturnal things. Witness the owl and the cat. And last of all, that evident confusion in the sunshine, that hasty yet fumbling awkward flight towards dark shadow, and that peculiar carriage of the head while in the light, all reinforce the theory of an extreme sensitiveness of the retina. Beneath my feet, then, the earth must be tunneled enormously and these tunnelings were the habitat of the new race. The presence of ventilating shafts and wells along the hill slopes, everywhere in fact except along the river valley, showed how universal were its ramifications. What so natural then as to assume that it was in this artificial underworld that such work as was necessary to the comfort of the daylight race was done? The notion was so plausible that at once I accepted it and went on to assume the how of the splitting of the human species. I dare say you will anticipate the shape of my theory, though for myself I very soon felt that it fell far short of the truth. At first, proceeding from the problems of our own age— It seemed clear as daylight to me that the gradual widening of the present merely temporary and social difference between the capitalist and the laborer was the key to the whole position. No doubt it will seem grotesque enough to you and wildly incredible, and yet, even now, there are existing circumstances to point that way. There is a tendency to utilize underground space for the less ornamental purposes of civilization— There is the Metropolitan Railway in London, for instance. There are new electric railways, there are subways, there are underground workrooms and restaurants, and they increase and multiply. Evidently, I thought, this tendency had increased till industry had gradually lost its birthright in the sky. I mean that it had gone deeper and deeper into larger and ever-larger underground factories, spending a still-increasing amount of its time therein, till, in the end, even now, does not an East-End worker live in such artificial conditions as practically to be cut off from the natural surface of the earth? Again, the exclusive tendency of richer people do no doubt, to the increasing refinement of their education and the widening gulf between them and the rude violence of the poor, is already leading to the closing in their interest of considerable portions to the surface of the land. About London, for instance, perhaps half the prettier country is shut in against intrusion, and this same widening gulf, which is due to the length and expense of the higher educational process, and the increased facilities for, and temptations toward, refined habits on the part of the rich. will make that exchange between class and class, that promotion by intermarriage, which at present retards the splitting of our species along lines of social stratification, less and less frequent. So in the end, above ground you must have the haves, pursuing pleasure, and comfort, and beauty, and below ground the have-nots the workers getting continually adapted to the conditions of their labor. Once they were there, they would no doubt have to pay rent, and not a little of it, for the ventilation of their caverns. And if they refused, they would starve or be suffocated for arrears. Such of them as were so constituted as to be miserable and rebellious would die. And in the end, the balance being permanent, the survivors would become as well adapted to the conditions of underground life and as happy in their way as the upper world people were to theirs. As it seemed to me, the refined beauty and the atoliated pallor followed naturally enough. The great triumph of humanity I had dreamed of took a different shape in my mind. It had been no such triumph of moral education and general cooperation as I had imagined. Instead, I saw a real aristocracy armed with a perfected science and working to a logical conclusion the industrial system of today. Its triumph had not been simply a triumph over nature, but a triumph over nature and the fellow man. This, I must warn you, was my theory at the time. I had no convenient Cicerone in the pattern of the utopian books. My explanation may be absolutely wrong. I still think it's the most plausible one. But even on this supposition, the balanced civilization that was at last attained must have long since passed its zenith and was now far fallen into decay. The too perfect security of the upper worlders had led them to a slow movement of degeneration, to a general dwindling in size, strength and intelligence. That I could see clearly enough already. What had happened to the undergrounders I did not yet suspect, but from what I had seen of the Morlocks—that, by the way, was the name by which these creatures were called—I could imagine that the modification of the human type was even far more profound than among the Eloi, the beautiful race that I already knew. Then came troublesome doubts. Why had the Morlocks taken my time machine? For I felt sure it was they who had taken it. Why, too, if the Eloi were masters, could they not restore the machine to me? And why were they so terribly afraid of the dark? I proceeded, as I have said, to question Weena about this underworld, but here again I was disappointed. At first she would not understand my questions, and presently she refused to answer them. She shivered as though the topic was unendurable, and when I pressed her, Perhaps a little harshly, she burst into tears. They were the only tears, except my own, I ever saw in that golden age. When I saw them, I ceased abruptly to trouble about the Morlocks, and was only concerned in banishing these signs of the human inheritance from Weena's eyes. And very soon she was smiling and clapping her hands, while I solemnly burned a match.